0: This is the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. This episode of the podcast is an installment in our Emerging Scholar series and features a discussion with Megan Bush, a PhD student from the University of South Carolina. You'll hear more from Megan in a bit. The COVID-19 global pandemic continues to disrupt academic institutions with many graduations and some abroad programs canceled and thesis and dissertation defenses completed virtually. Things are changing rapidly for us. Higher education as we know it will not be the same after this global pandemic. What does that mean? We'll have to wait and see. Right now, it means self-quarantine it means social distancing it means virtual learning for me this was hard i don't necessarily mean transitioning my courses online was hard i had taught online before so i had a head start the hard part was after a few days realizing that i wasn't going to see my students again that they were going that we weren't going to be together again It really hit me after our first asynchronous Zoom meeting. It hurt and this type of emotional, mental labor we need to recognize. We need comfort from many things in these dark times and often it is our students which lift us up when we are feeling down. This is tough for sure. So make sure to grieve this lost time and try to stay mentally healthy while we're apart. Reach out if you need anything. Since no one gets to present at 4Cs, ACTW, Computers in Writing, RSA, or any other conference, the Big Rhetorical Podcast extends an open invitation to folks who would like to join the podcast to talk about their conference presentations or other work. Reach out to us, and hopefully we'll put together a couple of mini-panels. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series is a unique series of podcast episodes and inclusive space specifically designed to highlight the life and career work of graduate students and other academics who enjoy discussing the development of their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service to the fields and disciplines of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication the big rhetorical podcast emerging scholars series offers participants the opportunity to contribute to o- ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond this record of conversations eventually will be a vast catalog a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric writing studies and technical communication moreover the series serves as a glimpse into the variety of positionalities and personalities currently working in and defining these areas as well as a way to track specific disciplinary themes as they manifest throughout time megan j bush is a phd candidate in the university of south carolina's english composition and rhetoric program
1: in one of my interview questions i used the word y'all which seems super normal to me Me to use. And I got so many mean emails back from our readership about using this word. I had never gotten a response like that. I was 24 years old. I cried a little, you know, I was upset about it. So that started to get me thinking of like, why are people upset about this? Like we're in the South, we're a Southern magazine. I'm interviewing people from the South. It seemed like the perfect rhetorical move to put it there. So that like little, little piece, that little um, time at the magazine really sparked what will eventually become my dissertation.
0: Her research interests include rhetorical stylistics, rhetoric of the American South, and digital composition pedagogies. She currently serves as the Assistant Director of the University of South Carolina's First Year Writing Program and as the Editorial Assistant of Composition Studies. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Megan Bush.
1: So I am Megan Bush. I am currently a Ph.D. student and also a graduate teaching assistant at the University of South Carolina, and I also serve as an assistant director of our first year writing program.
0: Excellent. So you live in Columbia?
1: I don't, actually.
0: Oh, first curveball right off the bat. I love it.
1: Yeah, I live in Charleston. So I grew up on the coast of South Carolina in a town called Merle's Unlit and then moved to Charleston for my undergrad. And once I got here, I went through my undergrad, my MA degree and was working in the field. And when I decided to go back to school, my husband and I said, "Mm, I don't know if we want to move for this. So we did it so i've been commuting from charleston to columbia for the past three three and a half years
0: how far is the commute
1: it's not too bad it's an hour and a half usually give myself two hours because parking on campus you know it's rough
0: i gotcha i really connect to what you're saying about like your husband and and yourself making that decision together not to move and stuff like that and my wife and i made that same decision when i went back to school and we decided to move, right? So it's always interesting to hear for someone who decided not to move. So, what were some of the things kind of guiding your decisions there?
1: Yeah, there were a few things. So, we owned our house in Charleston. We still do. That's a big so thing right there. It's a huge thing. <laughs> we had only been in it, I guess, when I started the program, we'd been in the house maybe two and a half, three years. So, it really had, we had not been here long enough to make a good return on our investment. And then my husband has a great job in Somerville, South Carolina. So, if we moved, it would mean him looking for a new job, and he already loved where he was. So we just decided to stay.
0: Well, I know that you are at the University of South Carolina uh, now, but you haven't always been there. You started off at Charleston Southern University, I believe. You're right,
1: Charles, yes.
0: And tell us a little bit about that experience there. I'll, I have never been to Charleston.
1: Oh, my goodness. You must come. I know. Uh, <laughs> So Charleston Southern is located a little bit outside the city. It's a small private school um, affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, and it was really the kind of the perfect school for me. I went to a very small private high school, and so coming out of there, Charleston Southern was also a small school. It had a great sense of community among like the professors there and also the students there. In that, um, I don't know, we lived together, we learned together, we um, just experienced like that true like undergrad college time um, in a way that was very community focused.
0: So your bachelor's there was in English. Yes. What what drew you to English at, at, for your bachelor's degree?
1: Um, actually, a teacher from high school did. So um, my parents didn't go to college. I'm a first gen student and I really didn't know a ton about like what to expect in college or really how to get there and I had this one teacher in high school who was my English teacher um, who had her master's degree and kind of gave me quite a bit of insight into what it was like to be a learner for a lifetime and to really experience what it's like to learn at the collegiate level and she really inspired me to not only just pursue like an undergraduate degree but to actually like pursue a career in academia.
0: And you decided to be a lifelong learner. You went back for your master's degree but you didn't stay at Charleston Southern. You were at in a joint program between the College of Charleston and the Citadel and that sounds fascinating. <laughs> it And was. a little terrifying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was it was not it was not terrifying. I'll okay. give you that. The Citadel okay. is not a terrifying place because I think that's what you're thinking. Like <laughs> the military stuff. Master's yeah. students did not have to participate in the military element. Okay. Uh,
0: so no drills before like class.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no drills before class. Um, but yes, I did um, pursue my master's degree at um, College of Charleston. And half of my classes were at College of Charleston, half at the Citadel. And um, my degree is actually in literature. So that's kind of what I started in. That's what I loved in undergrad. That's what I went into for my master's degree. And uh, I really had a fantastic experience there. And part of that was um, not only a class on composition and rhetoric taught by um, Dr. Chris Warnick, but also an internship that went along with it that gave me the opportunity to teach uh, foundational English at our technical college here. Um, and after that experience, I, I was kind of hooked. So I, I, I worked all through, my, all through my master's degree. So I was right. working full time and also going to school. Um, so I was able to teach that class in the evening. And when I got done, I called my advisor, who was the head of the department at Charleston Southern, and I said, hey, like, I just finished my master's. I did this teaching internship. Give me a class. And uh, they took a risk on me, and they did. So for several years, I adjuncted at Charleston Southern, my undergrad spot um in the evenings while I was still working during the day and I just I knew that's what I wanted my career to be not the day work I was doing but my little adjuncting job on the side I wanted that to be like real life
0: so there are so many questions I want to ask you and I have them written down here down here and I'm ready to go the first (laughs) one is let's get into Your master's degree in literature, because like you, I also have a master's degree in postmodern literature, right? Pasty white guy with a postmodern literature (laughs) master's degree. I'm like a walking cliche. But tell me a little bit about your master's degree. We've got how you moved to rhetoric, but what was your master's work yet?
1: So my master's work wasn't necessarily specified. Um, So we had the option to do a thesis or we had the option to continue in coursework. Um, I think it was like three extra courses or you write a thesis. And I took the extra course option. So I didn't really focus on anything. I had classes in Shakespeare and Irish literature and, you know, women's studies and gender studies. And it kind of ran the gamut. And I loved all of it. At the end, I didn't really know. Like when I finished my masters there were a lot of years between finishing the masters and starting my PhD and I didn't necessarily know what kind of literature I wanted to study but through teaching of course and and that instruction in compret compre it um I don't know it led me to the compret path instead of a literature path so I never had to make that like I'm a Victorianist type of claim. so.
0: I'm sure you'd be a great Victorianist if you had to, for sure. Why I'm not? not?
1: Sure I would. But.
0: <laughs> well, that's the other thing I wanted to talk a bit about was your industry experience. Um, because when I was reviewing your CV, you have a ton of cool industry experience that I don't know anything about. I do know you ran a magazine and that seems like a place to start perhaps to kind of get into some of this stuff. Uh, what magazine did you run? How long did you do that? What were your day to day? What was your day to day like during that?
1: Yeah. Um, so I ran Charleston Holman Design Magazine for, um, I was there for five and a half years. I started as an editorial assistant right after my undergrad. Um, the current editor came to speak to my senior class, and I followed her out and said, Miss, Miss, can I, can I give you my CV or my resume, I said at the time. And um, she said, we're not hiring, but yeah, you know, give it to me, that's fine. And so I did, and she called to ask if I wanted to shadow her there. Um, Her name is Julie, by the way. And um, when I got there, she said, oh, we actually have an editorial assistant opening. We're going to interview you now. So they did, and I ended up being offered the job. Um, I pushed my master's off for um, one semester so that I could kind of get settled into the job before I added some coursework on top of that. And my day-to-day there started from kind of just learning the ropes to my last two and a half years there I was the managing editor. I was responsible for... The scope of the magazine, conducting the interviews, writing. I had an editorial assistant of my own, so writing pretty much 50 to 75% of the content um, of a 260-page magazine produced four times a year. Whoa. So it was a lot of responsibility.
0: <laughs> Whoa. How many dissertations is that, right?
1: <laughs> it's so many dissertations. <laughs> <laughs> so... I know
0: that, you know, obviously you're doing this industry experience. You've got freelance experience, editing experience, and you do a little bit of that now in your role as a graduate student as well. We'll get to that for sure. But you mentioned earlier in our conversation that through that industry experience is what pushed you or made you realize, perhaps is a better way to say it, that you wanted to take your high school teacher's advice and really be a lifelong (laughs) learner and go back for your PhD.
1: Yes. So... It's actually the story, part of the story of how I I got to the PhD program um, and this kind of like...
0: Hang on. I don't want part of the story. Is there a whole story to (laughs) be told? There's a whole story. (laughs) Should we do just the whole story then, Megan?
1: Okay. We'll do the whole story. All right. So, um, in 2014, I wrote an article. So, I interviewed a girl named Brooke Mosteller. She was Miss South Carolina at the time. She was living in Charleston and she was... Super cool, wonderfully gracious family. We went in, we photographed her house because it was a home magazine and and they loved the South. So I wrote this article and in one of my interview questions, I used the word y'all, which seems super normal to me. Me too. And I got so many mean emails back from our readership about using this word. I had never gotten a response like that. I was 24 years old. I cried a little, you know, I was upset about it. So that started to get me thinking of, like, why are people upset about this? Like, we're in the South. We're a Southern magazine. I'm interviewing people from the South. It seemed like the perfect rhetorical move to put it there. For me at the time, of course, I did not know to think of it in those terms, like a rhetorical move to put this there. So I remember even at that time, I was kind of finishing up my master's degree. I think I just finished it, and I still had access to the library. So I started researching um, just through College of Charleston's library. And I had this folder on my computer that said, just y'all on it. And I was looking up all these articles of, you know, what's going on with this word? Why do people hate it? And so um, that really kind of like sparked my interest in studying what I study now, which is Southern dialects and how they're used really in business communications. So that like little, little piece, that little um, time at the magazine really sparked what will eventually become my dissertation. But then actually getting from there to, you know, the PhD program, I, I left the magazine and worked in marketing for three years or so, even a little bit into my PhD writing for them and doing events and, during that time, I, I just I, I knew that I wanted to teach full time. And my same advisor over at Charleston Southern, he he called me and he said, Megan, we have this lecture position open. Um, do you want it? And he told me the to pay and I just couldn't take the pay cut. And I said, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, like, that's not, I don't think I can do it. And he just said, Megan, if this is what you want to do with your life, go get your PhD. So, so I did. I applied to USC, only school I applied to. I was hoping for the best and that did happen. And now I'm at USC studying how words like y'all show up in our business communications and how sometimes it works um, and creates like really great rhetorical um, content and really like, um engaging ways of speaking in business settings and how sometimes it just falls flat on its face and people don't get it.
0: I'm from the South. Listeners to this podcast know that I'm from Birmingham. And when you were speaking, the first thing that popped in my head was, wait, but she's in South Carolina. So I wonder, like, Why do you think there was backlash from your readers about the use of the word y'all? Like, what was their motivation to actually reach out to you and perhaps be nasty
1: about it? So I I have a theory. Okay. good portion. So the magazine I worked for focused on very high-end homes. And a portion of our readership did not live in the South, but owned homes in really South Carolina, the Barrier Islands, Kiowa, Seabrook. So like
0: vacation homes?
1: Correct. So I think that most of the feedback that I got was from an older generation and also from a generation that has not grown up in the South, um, but is less familiar with that colloquial way of speaking. So that's my theory about like why that response happened. But I think it still happens, you know, even with people in the South, especially sometimes in academia.
0: I was talking to someone just last week maybe it was two weeks ago and i disagreed with him i want to say that up front he was talking about how he thinks that southerners own that word y'all and that people shouldn't use it as often like if you're not from the south you don't need to use that word what do you think about that
1: megan i think that we don't really own any of the language that we use um it's hard to say, like, I I have possession of this word and you yes. can't use it. Um, at the same time, though, I, I did some research uh, last year. I was specifically looking at politicians, Hillary Clinton being one of them, okay. who have kind of like embodied a... Southern dialect on the campaign trail, especially okay. when speaking to Southern audiences. And there's a, a particular clip of Clinton speaking in Columbia, South Carolina, and she sounded incredibly Southern, whereas in other speaking engagements, um, she did not embody that same sort of voice. And the response to that was largely negative. Um, even though it was kind of easy to see that she was striving to identify with her audience, um, the, I, I analyzed the Twitter response to it, and it was it was pretty cutting towards her picking up of this dialect that wasn't her own. Um, if we think... And it's just so hard to think of, like, ownership with language because it, it's so transient and moves across borders. Um, mm. But I know that... Um, I think it was Barbara Johnstone wrote an article about um, speakers of, like, Texas English in Texas, and she... Did not necessarily say that, like, those speakers owned their dialect, but it was something about the way that they perceive um, connection with that dialect as being, like, theirs, something that they possess.
0: Like Um, a cultural artifact.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about it.
2: My name is Trevor Meyer, and I'm an assistant professor in language literature and writing at Northwest Missouri State University. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a conference to promote? Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this style? Then the Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast's core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity, in localizing knowledge, and in strengthening relationships among peers. As we embark upon the newest season of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please feel free to check out older episodes and our newest episodes wherever you get podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Anchor.fm. If you have any questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form to the website, www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at the Big Ret, follow the podcast on Facebook, or email us at thebigrhetorical@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon.
0: So, focusing back on the dissertation, that you're in the middle of writing, I guess, as we I speak. am. Um, how have you taken, like, one word? It's, it's a contraction, I guess. It's a it, y'all. And turn that into a, a full-fledged dissertation project.
1: So, of course, it started with that word, with that experience that made me cry, the magazine. And um, bringing it into the Ph.D., though, has been a really great process, not only because I feel like I've gained the vocabulary to talk about these things, but I've learned, um, through classes in sociolinguistics and obviously composition and rhetoric and business writing, I, the field in which this, the fields, I should say, in which this conversation like actually belongs, um, so. Before, it was just kind of my curiosity, like, why do people hate this word, y'all? Right. But actually, through through the coursework and through prepping for creating my dissertation, I've been able to, like, find a niche where um, the things that I'm learning in the classroom can actually inform what's happening um, in my own research. So that's been a great process to go from... You know, really not a researcher working in industry to turn the questions that I have working in industry into something that can be researched in an academic systematic way. Mm. Um, so to kind of craft the dissertation from there, I study. I started with like conversations of translingualism and reading Garja and reading Young and his um, code meshing um, ideas, and I thought all right, well, these guys, they're talking about language in similar ways that I would like to talk about language, but instead of necessarily talking about African-American English or the English of speakers of other languages other than English, how can, I, how can I talk about dialects in a way that both celebrates the difference that we understand and see with dialects, but also kind of navigates the And the difficulty of using dialects and the social perceptions of those as we as Southerners, as speakers of Southern dialects or speakers of any dialect of English go into the world, especially a world that um, maybe not be familiar with or may not have the same appreciation for the language that we're using.
0: You mentioned that you're an interdisciplinary scholar, and so you mentioned multiple fields. Which fields are you pulling from for this dissertation project?
1: So three. So Hang on, um,
0: listeners. Yeah. Megan just got this huge smile on her face <laughs> when she went to talk about this. I can tell she's excited about this.
1: I am. I love this project. Okay. So I'm pulling, pulling from three fields. I'm working um, with the work of several sociolinguists, um, okay. as well as Barbara Johnstone as a discourse analyst. I'm working with genre studies and business writing kind of in tandem. And then also um, composition rhetoric, because not only... Am I looking at the rhetorical implications for using a a Southern dialect, a version of Southern dialect in our writing? But eventually I want to use the research that I, use the research from this dissertation to form a pedagogy of business writing that really foregrounds like an attention to the linguistic differences and how we use those to communicate interpersonally in professional settings.
0: How do you put together a committee for your dissertation when you're pulling from three different fields like that?
1: Uh, you bring in committee from all those different fields. So, <laughs> Dr. Kevin Brock is my is my chair, um, okay. and he is fantastic with genre studies, but really he's just a brilliant scholar and has been able to guide me not only in forming my committee, but helping me bring these fields together to say something that or develop a research project that. I hope, will be influential to all three of those fields. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also working with Dr. Chris Holcomb, um, who's interested in in rhetorical style, um, and then Dr. Hannah Rule, who is a compositionist, works in embodied pedagogies. And I do have a sociolinguist, Dr. Elaine Chun, um, from University of South Carolina, on my committee as well.
0: Was that something that the department um, pushed you to do, was uh, having Dr. Chun on your committee your decision? How does she fit into the fold?
1: So actually, it was my decision to pull a sociolinguist into um, into my committee, mainly because I wanted to make sure my linguistics research was spot on. Like, I don't have I don't have a background in phonetics or in describing the features of um, Southern uh, American English. I just right. don't. I don't have the language for that and I am developing it and continue to develop it, but I needed some oversight that was real expertise in that area. And Elaine definitely provides that.
0: Does South Carolina ask you all to pursue an outside, uh, outside reader from the institution?
1: Yes. Um, so Anish Bawarshi is going to be my outside reader. Um, he's been really great. He, as you know, is, um, really the guy for, for genre studies. And, um, he uh, was absolutely gracious and willing to serve on my committee, which I am grateful for.
0: I got a little Benarsi and Baharshi and uh, Rife. Yeah. Like just a, <laughs> uh, just a quote saved in the notes. So that I, all right, time to insert that almost every time. That, <laughs> <laughs> that I Write a piece for sure. That's super cool. How did you How did you uh, How did you meet uh, Anise?
1: Um. So. I, I cold emailed him. Um, he did know, I know (laughs) I love it email to send to, to press send on. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, it did help. He had worked in the past, um, with Kevin, uh, my director, my chair. Um, so I was able to, to name drop Kevin's name, kind of describe the project that I was working on. And he, um, Thankfully, he said yes, that he was, he was willing to, to be that outside reader for me.
0: That's so cool. So you're bringing in genre analysis, genre studies through, through Uh What other methods are you impl- employing in your
1: dissertation project? Yes. So the goal of my dissertation is to understand how uh, writers in business settings really draw on regional dialects to craft connections with an audience and to also build an ethos for themselves. So in order to really um, figure this out, I've set up kind of a, a hybrid methodology that incorporates interviews with those who speak um, Southern U.S. English, along with an analysis using the techniques of discourse analysis and genre analysis of their email communications. So my goal through that is to understand what they perceive um, their southern dialect to be and how they perceive that they use it and to draw a comparison between how it's actually used in writing in these email communications. When I've developed this methodology, I am implementing it in a very small way to start with for my dissertation, something that's like palatable. Right. So I have um, 10 women in marketing in coastal South Carolina who are willing to participate, to let me interview them, to let me dig through their emails for their you know, southern dialect use. Um, That's really, so cool. I, I think it's going to be, um, and really see like you know what they're doing, what do they perceive their dialect to be, and if and is are their perceptions actually playing out in the writing that they're producing um, in these email communications with others?
0: How'd you go about designing a study like this to bring in all of these different voices from women a- around South Carolina?
1: So it started with a little bit of practicality and a little bit of these are kind of the fields that are relevant to what I'm trying to say. So that really started when I was making my comprehensive exam reading list of what fields do I need to draw upon to be able to make the claims and set up the study uh, in a way that is beneficial and well-researched and well-rounded. And then actually focusing the study where I focused it came from really the practical question of who do I know that would participate in this? Who would let me like read through their emails? And from that time that I, I worked in marketing, from about 2016 to 2019, I made really great friends, really wonderful like, lifetime mentors who were willing to just say, sure, like I'm happy to do this for you. And not only that, I'll introduce you to five other people who might want to participate in this. So It started with a little bit of practicality of who could I get on board to do this with me, and then it grew from there.
0: You mentioned earlier that you kind of got into the industry work as an editorial assistant, but it sounds like that's how you got into it, and then they they got you into the room and were like, we're gonna hire you right now to do this awesome job. (laughs) Um, But I know that you are an editorial assistant with composition studies now. Uh, Could you talk a little about your role there and what you all are, are doing and the work you're doing with that journal?
1: Absolutely. So it's a new role for me. I started there um, in early December last year. Um, Kevin, my advisor, introduced me to Matt Davis over there. And then, of course, also he's co-editing with Kara Tatzak. So it's been like it's been really awesome to get to know um, professors and people in the field who are outside of the University of South Carolina or even just kind of the southeast version of composition and rhetoric. It it makes the field seem smaller, I guess, to know, I don't know, to be working with people all over the US, it's just a really, it's a cool thing. Um, I've really enjoyed it thus far. And um, we have some pretty cool things coming up. So not only are we working on a special issue that will be produced digitally, um, it's about co-requisite writing courses. So that's gonna be coming out in the summer.
0: Excellent. We'll be looking for that.
1: Yes, sh- should be super cool. Um, we're also launching a new section about infographics. That's oh. gonna, I think that's coming out in our spring issue, so that's coming soon as well. And we're working on cover art, and different people in the field have been designing our covers. So the new one uh, coming out next, um, will have a cover designed by Jody Shipka. So it should be... Some really cool things on the horizon for comp studies, especially with, you know, the new editorial team taking over, and it's going to be great.
0: And will we be, will, will we run into you at 4Cs? Are you going to be in Milwaukee, or ATTW even?
1: I will be in Milwaukee for 4Cs, not ATTW. Got it. Um, I'll be presenting there. I did a project in a class a few semesters back where I was teaching a course, a themed course. Um, first year writing course that was about um, rhetoric in the American South. And I had my students do this Instagram project to do kind of like micro analyses of cultural artifacts of the South. And it turned into a really awesome project. So I'm going to, you know, present the results of that and how it went and some pedagogical moves that I think I even could have done better at seas coming up.
0: Now, you mentioned that last part when i was looking through your cv we've covered your editorial work your industry experience your disc all this cool stuff but there's one little thing on your syllabus that we haven't talked about that i noted and that is a class that you taught at usc researching and writing about the american south i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that class and uh what it, what that class is about and what you all did in that class
1: Absolutely, so this is the class that inspired that Instagram project. Um, USC has this program called the Capstone Program. Okay. And it's for students who are interested in a, um, essentially a more in-depth college experience. They set okay. personal goals, they take themed classes, and they live in cohorts and kind of um, function as a, their own academic community. So I got to work with these Capstone students to develop this course researching and writing about the American South. Essentially, it focused on the rhetoric of, of the South, and we looked at a ton of nonfiction pieces written by famous Southerners. Um, we looked at The uh, the Bitter Southerner, that podcast, and also their accompanying website, um, and a lot of really cool rhetorical things happening in the South that I think they would not have gotten a focus on had they taken just the standard first-year writing course. So
0: what's it like to hang out with Andrea Lunsford?
1: But I have had lunch with her twice. So Okay.
0: What's that like?
1: She is the most knowledgeable, kindest scholar of composition that I have ever met. Yeah. Um, she's so attuned to questions of equality in the classroom and attuned to listening to the stories that her students tell and carefully, rhetorically listening to anyone who's speaking. Like She is the most gracious scholar ever.
0: Well, it's Can't not say. a competition, and I know you've had lunch <laughs> with her twice, but... Once she liked one of my tweets. So
1: what? <laughs> <laughs> The question is though, does she run her Twitter?
0: That's a great question. It could be, <laughs> I I don't know. So we should talk again for sure.
1: We should. Find me at C's. We'll 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 catch do. Up.
0: Well have a great day.
1: You too, Charles. Thank you.
0: Thank you. As we approach the end of our second season and look towards season three, which will include the production of our 50th episode, I'm asking you to please write a review for the podcast. By writing a review, you will help the podcast visibility across platforms on which the podcast is available. That's the primary thing we need right now as we take the next steps in expanding our reach. Thank you for your help with this. Okay, rhetorical listeners, make sure to download all episodes of The Big Rhetorical Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Rhet, and find us on Facebook. You can email the podcast at TheBigRhetorical at gmail.com. And you can buy merch from our online store, CafePress.com slash TBRPodMerch. Until next time, be kind to one another and always be listening rhetorically.